The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Gimpy Central Medical Centre, bepositive.com.au, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and Luscious Slicks. In this episode, I get to chat with a former Vietnam assault helicopter pilot who went on to command a battalion in the first Gulf War in Operation Desert Storm. Colonel Matt Jackson enlisted as a warrant officer and worked his way through the ranks before retiring as a colonel, along the way being decorated for his courage on the battlefield, writing about his exploits in three books, the Undaunted Valor series. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Over the bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Colonel Matt Jackson... Welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you very much for having me. I want to talk to you about your military career. It's a distinguished career that started off as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. You've written three books about it, and that's where I want to start. You've written the three volumes of Undaunted Valor. Tell us about what was the motive behind writing the books? I started out writing the books as a biography. And the more I thought about it, as I was writing, I thought, my grandkids are never going to read this. So then I thought, well, I'll make it as a novel. Well, at the time, I was, I, I was wrestling with PTSD. Never had a problem till I fully retired. And then it hit me. And the doctors, one of the doctors that I was seeing, he said, look it, you thought about writing this biography. Write about what you did in Vietnam, because that's where your problems are at. And let's see if we can get something brought out. So I started to write the first book. And the first book starts with when I joined the Army, went through my basic training, my flight school training, then went to Vietnam and my first 18 months flying there. I took that book and went to the first time I'd ever been to one of our unit's reunions. And I presented the book at the reunion. But right away, well, what about this? What about that? Why didn't you talk about this? So I wrote the second book. Got that done. Hey, what about this? What am I? So I wrote the third book. And just about a couple of hours ago, I was catching it again from somebody in the unit of, why didn't you talk about this when we first got to Vietnam? So that's how I got started writing those books. And now I'm off writing another series about Desert Storm. Were you surprised by their reaction to what you'd written? Yes, I was very surprised. I am never pictured myself as a writer. Uh, in fact, I still don't. But uh, the response was just overwhelming from guys that, that have served in Vietnam, that were chopper pilots there, or crew members, or even grunts. And uh, I was really surprised at the response I was getting on this. What sort of people is the book actually aimed at these days? And what sort of market are you getting to buy these books? The focus of the books, you know, I hadn't thought about that um, until after they were out there and I started seeing who was buying them. And the focus really started out being at Vietnam helicopter crews. 
But more and more, I'm finding that today's uh, young people are really interested in what Vietnam was about. And more and more young people are buying the books. Uh, my podcast with somebody else was set up by my nephew, who he's 35 right now. Uh, he read the book and all of his buddies read the book and they said, God, we got to get your uncle on this podcast. So that's that's a lot of the people that are buying it and purchasing the books now. Uh, the audio book as well has done very well. And it's those are mostly truck drivers who long haul truck drivers have been buying up the audio book so they can listen to 13 hours of it going across country. Who did you get to actually do the audio part of it? I went through uh, ACX. Uh, to do the audio, and I hired a guy named Jack Nolan uh, off of ACX, uh, interviewed about 15 people. Jack was the, the best one, and, uh, and, and he did it, and we set it up. I'm, I was going to get the third book on audio as well, but something came up, and it's, it's backed me up on that one. So I'm looking at next week, maybe getting on, doing the audio on it, and I think I'm going to do the audio myself. Uh, people have said, hey, you got the voice for it. Let's 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 hear you do it. So we'll see. I'll try one chapter and see how it comes out. So, what do you hear when you hear someone reading your story and you're listening back to it? What do you do? You engage in the story again? I I do in my head. Uh, I'll start visual. You know, right away I'll start visualizing what he's talking about and going, "Oh yeah, God, I should have said this in there. Man, I wish I'd have added that to this." <laughs> Oh man, that was really, I forgot all about that. Yeah, we need to put this back in the, the next story. So that happens. You know, I can tell you what I did 50 years ago. I can't tell you what I had for breakfast this morning. <laughs> Could you write another book about it? You say you thought about so many things that you didn't put in. Could there be a fourth book? There probably will be a fourth book for sure. Uh, again, one of these people came to me and said, hey, in Lamsam 719, the biggest battle in Army aviation has ever fought in, you only covered really the southern side of the battle. You didn't cover the northern side of it that much. And I said, yeah, you're right. I have more sources. Well, we got plenty of sources. So there's probably going to be a fourth book on the northern side of Lamsam 719, the battle that took place up on, on the north side of the battle. How long does it take to you to write these books? I am not, I'm not one of these people that can crank out a book every 90 days. So I'll sit down and write it and I'll write maybe one or two chapters and then I'll put it aside for three or four days and then I'll think about what's coming up next and go on. So long story short, it takes me about four months to write a book. It's really not that long though when you think that there's a lot of people that think about writing a book then there's a smaller percentage that actually start. Then there's an even smaller percentage that finish that book and an even smaller percentage from that that actually get them published. What was that process going through from starting to actually getting it pro uh, published? Well, it, you know, I wrote the first book and uh, made my wife read it. And finally, she, <laughs> finally she just said, look it. You're going to get an editor because I ain't reading this anymore. So I went ahead and got an editor, and, and the editor really helped me out. She, she pointed out a lot of stuff uh, and still does. Then I sent out uh, letters to agents to get an agent to represent me to get it published. I sent out 142 letters. 
and I got 142 rejections. <laughs> so, okay, I got I got tough skin. I can put up with that. So a friend of mine, James Rosen, who has written many books, very good ones, uh, he suggested, he said, hey, 52% of all published books now are published on Amazon. Why don't you go down that route instead of trying to find an agent? So I thought, all right, I'll give it a try. And sent my manuscript into Amazon, and we published the first book on Amazon, published all of them now on Amazon. And the thing that makes me kind of happy is, since I published them, I've had a couple of people come back and say, we'd really like to represent you. And it was fun <laughs> sending them their, their reject notices. No thanks. Yes, it's an interesting thing that uh, how many times even say Harry Potter was rejected. You know, some of these great stories that are so good, but people just pass them by. Why do you think yours was originally, now young people are picking it up, as you say, why do you think it was turned down at first? I, I think it was... Uh, there are so many uh, authors out there, Jack Carr, Clancy, uh, all these guys with books that are kind of similar, that the the critics or the agents, they're looking for the one that they know they can get into the publisher's office right away and make money on. And a lot of them just, you know, they don't want to take a chance on something slipped over from Vietnam. So I think that's the reason I got the, the reject notices. But in hindsight, it doesn't bother me. Stephen King came out with a great saying, saying the best way to write a book is to sit at the typewriter and type. What was that first instance when you actually got down to start writing? What was the, the thoughts that when you're actually putting words on paper? How did that feel? Well, it, it was challenging. Scare, scary is a better way to put it. Um, I go for walks in the morning, walk about two and a half, three miles. And as I was walking, when I first started out, I was writing the chapters in my head as I was walking. Got to think about something. And so I'd come back. I'd, I'd think for a chapter. I'd come back here. I'd sit down. I'd pound it out in a rough draft. And then when I got all the chapters done, then I started going back and refining them. Uh, when you first sit down, you look at the, the keyboard, you're thinking 300, 400 pages. Oh my God, I never wrote term papers this big in college. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you just have to stick with it. You have to stick with it. Some people are very regimented. This, this friend of mine, James Rosen, James goes in, locks himself in, uh, uh, in his garage where he's got his, his studio or his office set up at, and he'll spend six, seven hours in there just typing away. I can't do that. I, I come in, I'm usually get up at 3.30 in the morning, uh, get a cup of coffee. I'll come in here. I'll sit down. I'll start typing out maybe chapter two. And that's that's about my brain power for the morning. And then <laughs> I'll, spend, I'll spend the afternoon thinking about, okay, next chapter, what's that going to be about? The first thing you have to do, I found out after writing the first book, uh, and it was kind of easy because it was the first book was completely in my head. Uh, but on the second book, I sat down and wrote out an outline first of what each chapter was going to be and then started over going back through and filling the chapters, filling the outline in as the chapters came up. Did you take any notes while you were in Vietnam? Is it something that you wanted no. to say, had no idea you were going to write back then? No. no. <laughs> I have thought about writing that first book for 50 years. Uh, 
I had no notes, but what I did have, uh, when my mother passed away a couple of years ago, we found in her possessions, I must have found a stack of letters that deep that she had kept when I wrote from Vietnam. And so going through those, uh, that brought a lot of memories back. And I also had a lot of photographs that I took over there that as going through those again, oh yeah, I remember that event. Oh, that's when so-and-so got shot down. Or, oh, I remember this guy here. And so that those all kind of helped. Uh, for Desert Storm, I did write notes. Uh, no intention of publishing, <laughs> but I had a bunch of these little green notepads. In fact, I got four of them that I carried as a commander. And I got all kinds of notes written down them on things that we were doing and, and how many people we had in the unit, et cetera. So this, these are helping me for the Desert Storm series. So how many books do you plan to write about Desert Storm? Uh, there's going to be three in that one. Uh, the title of it is Crisis in the Desert. Uh, the first book is uh, Crisis in the Desert, Project 19. The second one is uh, Crisis in the Desert, Desert Shield. And the last one is Crisis in the Desert, Desert Storm. You said you had PTSD after Vietnam. How about Desert Storm when you were in charge, when you had guys that were really essentially your responsibility? I tell you, it was more challenging in Vietnam than it was in Desert Storm. Desert Storm, I commanded a battalion. I had, uh, I had about 900 soldiers in my command. It was a, 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 an air assault infantry battalion. We went in by helicopters. And... Uh, there was nothing to it, tell you the truth. I mean, <laughs> four days of combat, and, and that's it. And we got into about three firefights in those four days, and there really weren't much to it. Uh, being an aircraft commander in Vietnam uh, or a flight leader in Vietnam with 20 aircraft following behind you, uh, that was more challenging than being in, a, in Desert Storm, I can tell you. Was it because when you were a, a helicopter pilot and in charge of that aircraft that you were so much more intimately involved with the guys that were your crew on the helicopter in Vietnam? Oh, yeah, yeah. They, you always kept, uh, when you made aircraft commander, you were assigned an aircraft, had a crew chief and a gunner. Your Peter pilot or co-pilot, those are new guys that just came to the unit. And we used to rotate them amongst between the aircraft commanders. So they would learn a little something different, different techniques, et cetera, from all of us. So, but the three guys that, that were always in the aircraft, you became very close, very close, very tight. Do you still keep in touch with them? Uh, no, because uh, the two kids passed away already. You know, they're no longer kids, but both of them had passed away. I did up until the time they passed away. How did that affect you when they passed? Uh, it's sad. Uh, makes you realize your own mortality. Uh, but uh, they were good kids. They had good lives. One just one uh, passed away here not too long ago. And uh, but it was good to see that uh, he as a as a door gunner, uh, 18, 19 years old, just out of high school. And, you know, you look at him, you think, well, is he ever going to make it in life? Uh, he made it very well in life, did very well for himself, got out, went back to college, got a degree and uh, became a very successful businessman. It's interesting. What sort of grounding did this whole Vietnam experience give to you guys? Because you essentially, as you say, you're only kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we were kids. In fact, uh, when I got to the unit, I was 22 years old. I was an old man. <laughs> was. Most helicopter pilots 
who are high school graduates or college dropouts. And I was a college dropout, but most of them were 19, 20 years old. And I got there, I was 22. And so they kind of looked at me like, God, you're an old man. To what these young guys did, and that's, and that's kind of the driving focal point of the books, uh, is the courage, the loyalty, and the dedication that these helicopter crews had to get the job done. Uh, you know, you wouldn't think that 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds were that dedicated, and I've never met a bunch of more dedicated men than what I did in Vietnam flying with them. What about yourself? How were you motivated at the time? One, I wanted to stay alive, so that kept me motivated. Uh, but I just, I just thought it was the right thing to do at the time. That's the reason I joined. Uh, I saw a lot of other guys going over there, and I'd always wanted to do something in the military. I knew that. And I always wanted to do something for my country. So I think patriotism was probably the biggest thing that motivated me. And uh, when I came home the first time from Vietnam, uh, I still didn't know if I was going to stay in the Army or not. And I went and went to Washington, D.C., and I sat down at Warren Officer's Branch. And for an hour and a half, I talked to this Warren Officer about staying, you know, whether I should stay in or get out. And uh, after an hour and a half talking to him, I was convinced I'm staying in. I'm going I'm to do my 20. What so, did he say to you that made the difference? Well, I, I got in there, and it's in the book one, the, the conversation. And I, I said, you know, I'm back to Vietnam. I want to know what my options are. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to, one, I want to, I, I want to go back to college. He goes, I'll send you to college. I'll send you to college. I'll give you your full pay, your full flight pay, your housing allowance, and all you got to do is study and graduate. I went, You'll do that for me? He goes, yeah, we'll do that. And he says, and on top of that, uh, if you want to stay a warrant officer, we'll send you to a fixed wing transition or an attack helicopter transition. And he said, I looked at your records and he says, your records are good enough to be a commissioned officer and they'll send you back to college. So I thought, I'm going to stay in. I'm going to go back to college. Let them pay for it. That is incredibly powerful to have someone give you that sort of respect and also just confidence in you. Yes. Yeah, it was. He, he was, he looked at my file and he said, you know, good grief. We don't see we don't see these kind of files for warrant officers. And he said, this is an extremely strong file. And he said, you know, you've even got a, from, uh, when I graduated from flight school, I was the, the class commander, so to speak, the student commander. And uh, he said, we've even got a recommendation from the school for you to receive a commission. So uh, I thought, wow. Why didn't you try and get a commission at that stage? I don't know, I was kind of still debating whether I wanted to go the commission route or stay a warrant officer. I will tell you years later, when I was a colonel or lieutenant colonel, I used to think back how nice it would have been if I had stayed a warrant, because then I could have just flown my helicopter and drank my beer and not have to put up with anybody bothering me. But, uh, <laughs> but I wanted to do more than just fly the helicopter. There's so much more to do in the Army. And really, at, at times you felt like, and, and I heard Guy use the expression the other day when I was at Fort Campbell, at times you feel like a glorified bus driver. So um, I, I just thought, no, there's, there's too, much, too much more to do. And, uh, and then the opportunity came along to get a commission. Uh, and so I, I didn't have any choice. I was handed the commission. I was, 
I wasn't even didn't even know I was getting it until the night it was given to me. So what happened then? I took off that morning and uh, somebody called me on the radio and said, hey, uh, we hate to see you leaving the unit there, Mac. I went, what? I'm not going anywhere. Oh, yeah, we heard you're going up to battalion headquarters. I thought, well, that's kind of stupid. Landed the chopper, was refueling it. My platoon leader came up, jumped up on the skid. He says, Matt, I really hate to see you going up to battalion, but send us the good missions. I thought, man, this has <laughs> got to be bad. <laughs> so all the rest of the day, I keep getting calls on the radio from guys. Hey, Matt, hate to see you leave. Hama, hama. That night I get to the club and I'm sitting there at the bar in the club. We had a little club for our officers. And the company commander came in and he says, uh, gentlemen, I got good news and I got bad news. Uh, the bad news, I'm going to give it to you first. Mr. Jackson's leaving us. Matt, come up here. Oh, Christ. I am going to battalion now. Got up there. He gave the speech about, you know, you've been in the unit now for 16 months. You've done a great job. You're an aircraft commander. You're a flight leader. Uh, we're going to miss you. And um, we hope you have a good future. Patted me on the back, shook my hand, told me to go sit down. So I went back to the bar, sat down. I'm facing the bar. I'm not facing him. And he says, and the good news is we've got a new pilot coming in. Uh, he's got a lot of combat experience. And uh, let me introduce you to Lieutenant Matt Jackson. And I'm sitting here thinking, boy, that son of a bitch has got the same last name as me. I wonder where <laughs> he came from. And I turned around and everybody's looking at me. And the old man looked at me and he said, come up here, Lieutenant Jackson. I'm like, me? He goes, yeah. Somebody had put me in for a direct commission to first lieutenant in the infantry. So uh, that's how I got it. Did you feel any different once you had got that commission? No. Uh, I, had to, I had to argue that night because the warrant officers wanted to throw me out of the warrant officer hooch because <laughs> they were afraid I'd pull rank on them. So, <laughs> but I convinced them that, hey, come on, you know. So let's see But no, I didn't feel any different. What was the camaraderie between you guys? It sounds like it was pretty special. It was. It was It was. We were all very tight. We were tight in the sense that the pilots amongst themselves and the crews, there was no we, they uh, type stuff. There was no racial problems either. Uh, 71, we started to see a little bit of that creeping in, but uh, 69, 70, there was no racial tension at all. Uh, you didn't care what color skin somebody had or you all bled red. So <laughs> that was it. Uh, but a very tight-knit organization. Uh, when I first got there, we had a terrible commander. I mean, guy was pretty bad. And the leadership didn't come from him. It came from a couple of the platoon leaders we had that were outstanding platoon leaders. And then he left, and the next company commander came in, and he was no better. And again, it continued that the platoon leaders were given the leadership to the unit. And then we got our third commander in, and he was fantastic. And things changed overnight with him. The fourth guy came in, things changed with him, and the fifth guy came in, and uh, things stayed great. We had three great commanders in a row there at the end. What did you learn from, as you eventually became a commander, what did you learn from these guys that you eventually instituted when you were in charge of other troops? Oh, wow. Uh, first thing I learned is you're not, you're not above anybody as a commander. Everybody that works for you has got to trust you and you have got to trust them. And that's the biggest part 
of being a good commander, I think, is building the trust and rapport with your subordinates. There's also no exclusion on good ideas. If a private comes up and says, sir, I think we might want to try this, pay attention to him. You may reject it, <laughs> but you explain to him why you rejected it. Uh, my ex-executive officer came up to me once, and I was coming up, hey, Bill, let's try this, and let's try that, and let's try it. And finally, he said, sir, you're killing the good fairy with ideas. You got to back off, sir. Okay, I will. But um, that's that's part of it. Um, and I tried to make it. We, we understood our mission, uh, and the mission was the focus. But there's nothing that says you can't have fun while achieving the mission. And that's what we try to do. And I think one of the best compliments I ever had as a battalion commander was one of my one of my scout sergeants came up one day to my wife and said, you know, Mrs. Jackson, I love coming to work because your husband makes it so much fun. And so that was probably the highest compliment I got as a battalion commander. Must have uh, made you feel yeah. really good. It did. It did. The other compliment I got that made me feel good is when we got back from Desert Storm, uh, one of the wives came up to me and said, thank you for bringing everyone home. And I said, that was my goal. So, yeah, there was it was good. I like being a battalion commander. It's fun. It's a tremendous responsibility when you've got people under your command and when you've got literally lives at risk. How do you feel about when you lose someone, when you're in charge? It might not necessarily be your fault, but do you wear that? To a certain extent. To a certain extent. Something happened in Vietnam that for many years... Uh, I thought it was my fault. Uh, an aircraft crashed. The crew, the four, the four crew members uh, were killed, uh, two of which were my crew chief and my door gunner. Uh, and for years, that I really thought I was responsible for that. I found out about four years ago, five years ago, uh, I was told at the time I wasn't responsible for it. I didn't believe that. But four or five years ago, I found out some other information that said, nope, there's no way impossible you could have been responsible for that. And what was but that? Still, it was it was a mechanical failure in the aircraft that I thought I had missed and come to find out that there's no way I could have found it. So, yeah, that hurts when you lose somebody like that. In combat, bad guys have got to they've got to they've got to vote. And you just do the best you can to protect your kids and to put them in the safest positions while accomplishing the mission. And the thing I told my guys, we went into Desert Storm before we went, I said, guys, we get in contact, I'm calling in TAC air. I'm calling in attack helicopters. I'm calling in artillery. I'm calling in mortars before you ever get to pull a trigger. Because I don't want to waste our ammunition and don't want to waste your lives. Let's, let's have somebody else hit them first and then we'll go after them. When you were uh, flying, was that uh, thought in your of your own mortality or was it that it couldn't happen to me? Couldn't happen to me. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will bet that every pilot that went over there uh, the first or second day wrote the letter that went in his wall locker and only to be opened upon his death. We all did that. What was in yours? Just mom, dad. I wasn't married at the time. Didn't have a girlfriend. And, uh, I just told them, you know, you were great parents. 
I hope I was a good son. And if, if I don't come home, at least I died doing what I wanted to do. So something to that effect. How hard was uh, that to write? It was a little tough. A little tough to, to again, you're facing your own mortality when you, when you write, put something to paper like that. But I will say also that the Army trained us. We went over there with the attitude, uh, several of us, that we probably weren't going to come back. And so if you worried about dying, you weren't that good of a pilot. You wouldn't push the envelopes. And several of us, in fact, I, I, when I came home the first time, I brought my best friend's bodies home. And, uh, and I told his parents, and his parents knew it, that him and I went over with the attitude that we probably weren't going to make it. And if we didn't make it, we didn't make it. But you didn't think about it when you were flying. Uh, it was, wasn't even in the front of your mind that you're probably going to get killed. If you would have, you wouldn't have done half the stuff that you did. Was it one of the most difficult things you did to talk to this guy's, your, your friend's parents? Uh, yeah, in fact, I stayed with them. I brought, brought the body home, and then they insisted that I stay at their house. And, uh, and we, I still stay in touch with his, his little brother. Little brother was in the, his first year at the Air Force Academy when Bill was killed. And uh, he went on to have a great Air Force career, then an airline career, and we still stay in touch. He was down here last year at our house. What were your thoughts of your own mortality after you um, took your friend home? I really questioned whether I wanted to go back to Vietnam. And the sad thing was is that he was flying in a VIP unit. He flew generals around, and he smashed into a mountaintop in bad weather. Where I was in an assault helicopter unit, uh, getting shot at and doing all kinds of crazy stuff with, with the infantry grunts. But uh, yeah, it makes you stop and think about it. It makes you stop and think about it when guys in your own unit uh, would go out and get killed. I, I came back in one night and uh, the company commander met me when I landed. And he told uh, my co-pilot, he says, uh, carry Mr. Jackson's gear to his, his room. Mr. Jackson, you come with me. <clears throat> I thought, well, this is kind of strange. We're walking and, and we're heading towards his hooch. And uh, he says, uh, I hate to tell you this, but your roommate was shot down and killed today. His whole crew. And so, you know, you take that kind of heart at the time. And what we used to do is we'd just get drunk that night, uh, drink excessively, have the next day off. And then day after that, you'd be back in the cockpit flying your missions, doing your job. You buried it. Uh, you buried it deep inside. And unfortunately, what is happening now and what the doctors have told me, because when I came down with PTSD, I thought, this is stupid. I, I honestly did not believe in PTSD. I thought, this is a, this is a crutch to get some free money. <laughs> and when it happened to me, uh, it was, I mean, I fell apart right in front of my wife and in front of a, a counselor for my eye. I was getting seeing a counselor about my eye. I lost the vision in this eye. And he brought up Vietnam, and I just, I fell apart. And the doctors were telling me, they said, that is not uncommon in you guys because you suppressed everything for so many years and now suddenly you don't have anything to do. You're retired. You're not going to work. You got no demands on you and your brain starts pulling all this stuff back out of the closets. And he said, most of our patients are in your boat. They're in their, their 60s and 50s and this happens. How long did it take you to get over? Some guys never get over. I, uh, 
it's been what four years now for me. I thought I was doing good, and the doctors thought I was doing really good. And last Saturday, I had two incidents that uh, that I broke down with. So I'll talk to the doctor about that. Can you talk to us about it? I just the guy brought up Vietnam. I was we're putting a motion picture together based on the books, and I had. Uh, one of my screenwriters and my producer with me. And I took them up to Fort Campbell last week in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, home of the 101st Airborne Air Assault Division, the most powerful division in the United States Army. <laughs> and uh, we were up there going through the museum and we were looking at the, the Vietnam displays and he asked me a question about something. And I just, I just, I just started to choke up and started crying and he apologized for asking the question. And, and my executive cruiser, who's just a sweetheart, she put her arms around me and said, Oh, it's okay. It's okay. So I, I apologize. And then we went out and we were, we were outside and they've got a, a, a bunch of helicopters outside for displays. And uh, we were talking about something on the road ahead. The accident got the people killed and, we started talking about that, and uh, I broke down again uh, because that was the, that was the event that uh, that caused me most of my problems. And to bring it up again just was a little painful at the time. Why was it that only four years ago that you found out that it really wasn't your fault? How did that come out? The uh, <clears throat> at the time that the accident happened, they sent in an accident investigation team. And the accident investigation team said, hey, uh, th this problem was caused by maintenance. And what it was, they, they rebuilt the rotor head on the chopper. And when they rebuilt it, there's a, a, a piece of metal on the side. It's called a pitch change horn. And it's got three, three bolts that hold it on. Well, when they rebuilt the rotor head, they redrilled those holes for those bolts. They made them one millimeter bigger but they put the same size bolts back in. So when the pilot at that time pulled full power, those bolts just ripped out. They didn't unscrew or anything. They just ripped right out of there. They never found the bolts, but they got the rotor head and they were able to look in there and they could see the grooves that were just all pulled out. So uh, the accident investigation board said, okay, that's what happened. I didn't believe them. Uh, I just, I just, I couldn't believe that would happen. And then about 45 years ago, the maintenance officer we had, him and I got back in touch with each other. And we started talking about this incident. He goes, you know, he says, I really thought it was my fault because he put that rotor head on the night before and went out and flew that aircraft that night. And he said, I, I really thought I screwed up. And he says, I took the rotor head down to, to where um, our general support maintenance was at. And we looked at the rotor head and saw that this is what happened to it. And that, in fact, uh, there's no way that you or I could have found the problem. So I felt I felt a little bit better about that. than since now I was talking to somebody that actually saw uh, the damage to the rotor head. It interests me, though, that it's taken so long for them to actually conclusively determine exactly what happened. Why did it take so long? No, they, they determined what happened within two weeks. 
but it's just the word never really got to me. I just knew I wasn't being blamed for it, but I was never explained to me exactly what happened to it. And they just say, hey, look, at you and uh, the maintenance officer honored fault as this. It was a mechanical failure. And that's all I knew. But um, then after talking to him after all these years, he came back and said, no, here's, here's, the, here's the details on it. Do you feel that you should have found it in pre-flight? Yes, but there's no way I would have found it. There's, there's no way. In fact, after that, whenever I pre-flighted, I would grab a hold of that pitch change horn and jerk on it as hard as I could. And uh, there's, there's no way I would have found that. You talk about patriotism. Your family has been involved in military service for generations. It started with your grandfather. Yep. What sort of service did he do? Ah, Grandpa. Grandpa Poggi uh, came over on the boat from Genoa, Italy, when he was just a little whippersnapper, <laughs> uh, and lived in New York City. Great-grandfather had a bar on Mott Street, which is the little Italy of New York City. And Pa, as we always called him, he joined the Navy. And he was on a destroyer in World War I in the, uh, the North Atlantic. And then uh, Dad, uh, when he graduated from high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he, uh, he wanted to get away from home uh, as soon as he walked off the stage. And so him and his father went to the post office, is where the, the recruiting offices used to be in those days. And he said the first office he saw was Navy. He said if it had been Army, he'd have gone there. But it was Navy. So this is 1939. He joined the Navy and uh, found himself on an aircraft carrier, the USS Lexington, uh, in a place called the Coral Sea, which I think you're familiar with. And uh, he was on the Lexington when it sank in the, in the Battle of the Coral Sea. And uh, spent about six hours floating in the water and decided that he didn't like aircraft carriers. So he joined submarines. And he spent the rest of his next 33 years of his career in submarines. Uh, loved, loved Australia. Uh, he was out of Brisbane on the subs and uh, Brisbane and Perth. And he just, he loved it down there in Australia. Uh, but that's, that's it. And then I joined the Army, and now both my sons are Army officers. How did your father feel when he went down, spent six hours, as you say, in the water? Did that affect him? No, no he just – he said he, he, he threw up a lot because he drank so much salt water. But <laughs> uh, he never said anything about it. He finally got picked up and got to come back to the States for 30 days free leave. But, uh, but he wanted to go back in submarines after that. Did you talk to your father and grandfather much about, you know, they went to two world wars. Um, did you talk to them much about their experiences? Uh, not so much my grandfather. Uh, I've got some old pictures of him uh, when he was a young swabby. But uh, Dad and I talked a little bit about it. He, uh, he did four combat patrols on subs uh, there in the Pacific. He spent some time in the Philippines. He talked a bit about it. He was a little upset by some of the, some of the things that they did on the submarines. Uh, I guess there was one case there where they, they sank a Japanese ship. There were Japanese survivors in the waters, and some of the guys on the subs uh, picked up a Thompson submachine gun and was shooting people in the water. Uh, Dad was opposed to that kind of treatment, but, but that was it. He uh, did come and fly with me in Vietnam as, as my door gunner. Uh, 
he was stationed in Saigon uh, for the last year I was there. And he'd come up and jump aboard and spend two or three days with me and fly, we'd fly together. So that was fun. Tell us about that. That must have been an awesome uh, experience. Yeah, it was good. I went down. I asked, I asked our unit commander if dad could come up. And he goes, yeah, bring him on up here. This is our third company commander, really good guy, Major Carlson. Uh, so I flew down there. Got dad. dad had a private pilot's license. So my, my co-pilot jumped in the back. Dad jumped in the, the right seat on the helicopter. And we took off, and he's flying, and I'm thinking, I picked it up to the hover. I wasn't about to let him try and hover it. I got to, got, it up, got us up in the air. I said, all right, you got it. And he takes the controls, and he's flying pretty darn good. I mean, we're straight, level, holding altitude, holding airspeed. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking, dang him. Then I watched him. He's watching the attitude indicator. He ain't flying the helicopter. He's flying the attitude indicator on the instruments. So I went, I stretched and reached back up, and up on the top panel, is where the DC circuit breakers were. I, I, popped that, I popped that circuit breaker and slowly the gyros wound down and that attitude indicator started turning like this. And so he starts correcting like this. And next thing you know, he, we're in this hellacious 90 degree turn. Aircraft's laying on the side and finally looked over and said, all right, smart ass, you got it. So, <laughs> but yeah, he, we had fun. He did a good job as a door gunner. Uh, my door gunner appreciated getting the days off. Uh, there was one incident that he wrote to my mother and he said, in my entire Navy career, I have never had a butt chewing like our son gave me. And I deserved it. What we happened? screwed up. Oh, we're flying along. I got troops on board and uh, dad's back there in the door gunner position. And one of the soldiers starts grabbing my shirt collar. I looked over and I said, what, what's the matter? He goes, what's your rank? And I said, I'm a W-2 warrant officer. Why? And he goes, well, you got a major back there. He must have really screwed up. <laughs> that was a lieutenant commander of the Navy. <laughs> so I, I told them, and they all got a good laugh out of that. We start in on this, put the troops in. We, we're about two minutes out. Artillery's been going in for four minutes into the LZ. Two minutes out, white smoke, Cobras roll hot. One minute out, I tell the door gunners, open fire. And my crew chief opens fire, and I hear nothing coming from my father's side of the aircraft. And all of a sudden, we've got green tracers. NVA is shooting at us. And so I said, Dad, open fire. I thought maybe his gun had jammed. Nothing. Dang. So I spin around and look back. Here he is. He's got a harness on. He's standing on the skids, and he's got his camera taking pictures of us going in on the assault. Uh, and I chewed him out, told him to get back on that damn gun. And then we got on the ground. I really chewed him out for that one. He knew he screwed up. Uh, but everybody came through okay. What was your relationship with your dad like? Oh, in high school, my senior year of high school, we may have. We may have spoken 10 times to each other. That was it. Uh, after that, we had a great relationship. We were really we were really tight, Dad and I. Did he find renewed respect for you when he saw you in operation? I think so. I think so. I think he found new, new respect for me when I graduated from flight school because he came back. He was stationed in Morocco at the time, 
and he came back and, and swore me in as a, a warrant officer. And uh, I, I, I think there was a new respect there for me. But yeah, in high school, we did not have a good relationship, especially in my senior year. I was, I was surprised at how smart he became between my age of, of 17 and 21. He, he became so smart between those ages. <laughs> I want to talk about the early days when you were um, moving around as a child of uh, a military military officer. Um, what was that? What was that like? Um, I had the same experience moving every couple of years with my father moving around uh, in the in the air force. What was that like moving around? I loved it. Uh, we went from let's see, I was in the second grade when we left New York, and we moved to uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Dad was on a submarine down there in Norfolk, and I used to love to go down on the submarine and. He had to watch on the weekend. I got to go with him and drink coffee with the sailors and and hang out on the sub. I thought that was pretty darn cool. Uh, and then uh, three years later, we're off to Naples, Italy. Spent three years in Naples, Italy. I learned how to speak very good Italian. It was "Ua uh, Kama Maya Hausa," and uh, <laughs> that was my that was my extent of my Italian. Uh, I went back to that town here about three years ago, four years ago, and to see how much it changed and they it hadn't changed a bit in all those years. But uh, then we went to New London, Connecticut, and that was fantastic. Dad found us a house that was built in 1770. Wow. And it was an inn on the road between New York City and Providence, Rhode Island. It had been completely gutted and re- renovated by a guy who was a, a critic for the Metropolitan Opera in New York. But he wanted somebody to live in it. And so we got to live in this house. Dad had to pay the taxes. That was it. And I would come home from school. There were 150 acres of oak forest all around us. The nearest neighbor was two miles away. I'd come in the door, drop my school books, grab my shotgun, and go outside and start hunting. We kept that freezer full of squirrels and rabbits, quail and grouse, and a deer or two. Uh, I went to the seventh and eighth grade in a two-room schoolhouse. First through fourth grade was in one room. Fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth was in the other room. One of the best teachers I ever had. And then from there, we went to Key West, Florida for three months, then to uh, Coos Bay, Oregon for a couple of years, then Yokohama, Japan when I graduated from high school. It's great with the military. Uh, I got to grow up in Malaysia, and uh, it was a, a it was idyllic back in the 60s. What was Yokohama like when you grew up there, when you spent time there, and on were you on base? Uh, we lived in a house, military housing area, yeah. But and we went to a uh, a Department of Defense dependent school. But uh, I loved Japan. Uh, it was it was a great experience being over there in Japan. Uh, Yokohama was a is a bustling city, uh, and I wasn't really used to big cities, so this was something new to me being a being in a big town. Uh, the Japanese people were always friendly. They were curious about us. And it, one experience I had, I guess we'd been there three months, four months. Dad came home. Spring break was coming up. Dad says, uh, hey, for spring break, uh, you're going to go live with the Japanese family for 10 days. 
I wasn't asked. I was told I would go to the gym. <laughs> I said, okay, what's the deal? And he said, well, there's this young man who's a cadet at Japan's West Point, and he's struggling with English, and they weren't going to let him go home for spring break unless an American goes with him who can't speak Japanese. So you're it. <laughs> so I did it. I went, I went with this guy. Uh, his family lived in a little tiny village about three hours outside of Hiroshima. Uh, his mother still thought Americans ate babies. Uh, they were terrified of me and I was terrified of them. And, uh, but after 10 days, we got along just super, just great. We had a great time down there, a little farming village. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I was immersed in Japanese at that point. It was good. Good. How was your father, uh, after fighting Japanese in the, uh, second world war, how was he being stationed there, uh, many years later? I wondered about that. Uh, there are one or two times that uh, I think the, the, the war crept out on him. That uh, Dad was always a very polite man. But there are one or two times with, with uh, a Japanese citizen that he was anything but polite. And I thought that, that might have been part of, of the war left over. Hmm. Uh, but other, other than that, he was generally a, a very polite person. What about yourself with the Vietnamese? Did you go back and have you been back? And what are your thoughts about the Vietnamese people because they were the enemy at the time? Uh, one, I will not go back to Vietnam because it's just too long of a plane flight. Uh, it, at my age, if it's over a seven-hour flight, I don't do it. I, I can't take it anymore. Uh, how do I feel about the Vietnamese people? They're great people. Uh, the, the average Vietnamese was caught up in this war and all they wanted to do was be left alone, grow their rice bowl, raise their kids, and they didn't give a rat's rear end who, who the government was. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, they were caught, the average person was caught in the middle between South Vietnamese Army, us, and the North Vietnamese. Uh, now, having said that, there were some that were about as two-faced as could be. During the daytime, they were happy and, and glad, and at night, they were the ones launching the rockets and the mortars against us. So uh, we found that out the hard way, but uh, it was harder on them when, when we pulled the bodies out of the trucks. But uh, nowadays, the, the Vietnamese, I, I am glad. I go on Google all the time and look at Vietnam. <clears throat> I'm so impressed at what I have seen from Google Earth as to what's there today compared to what was there when I was there. And I'm glad to see that the, the country really is, has been very prosperous and very successful. What did you think of the Vietnamese people at the time when you were a uh, helicopter gunship captain? At the time, uh, when I first went over there, I was 100% for them. After about seven months, I started to wonder what we were doing there. And when I went back the second time, I went back not for the Vietnamese, I went back because we were short of helicopter pilots. We were short of good pilots like me. And I don't mean to brag on that, but I really thought I was a pretty hot shot pilot. And uh, I went back for the grunts on the ground because those guys on the ground, the grunt, he had a miserable life. And I could see smiles on his faces when I would work my way down into a harbor hole and, and kick out the mail and kick out the cold beer to him. And, uh, 
and and or even better yet, when that kid would come out with his rucksack and junk on that helicopter, know that the next aircraft he got on was going to be the Freedom Bird going home. So that's why I went back. And we're going to try to bring that out. Uh, right now, we're doing a uh, writing a screenplay based on the books, and that's one of the things we're going to try to bring out in the screenplay is uh, the fact that the Vietnamese people, some of them in the daytime, were our friends, and at night they were trying to get us killed. And, and that's going to come out in the movie when, when we start shooting the movie and get the screenplay written. Did you realize that? Were you right on top of that at the time? Uh, after about six months, yeah. What drove it home big time for us was uh, we were getting rocketed and mortared every night. And one night a Cobra gunship from our sister company was coming back, and he saw the flashes on the ground. But they were moving. We thought, so he rolled hot on this thing. Next morning, we found out there was a truck that they put mortar tubes in the back of the truck and were driving down a road parallel to the base and firing the, the rounds as they drove down the road. And in the back of the truck was our barber and two of the girls that worked in the PX. They were dead, but that's when we said, you know, this is crazy. And then the hooch maids. Uh, I was there, I guess, about a year before we got hooch maids. And... The hooch maids would leave at three o'clock in the afternoon. Normally at five o'clock, they'd leave. They left at three o'clock. You knew you were going to get hit that night. They would never say it to us, but just the pattern was there. Three o'clock, they're leaving. Look out. We're going to get hit tonight. That's tough. You've got someone in your place of residence, essentially, and you know they'd be turning on you. Yep. But again, it was a situation that they knew if they said something to us and if whoever the NVA or the Viet Cong in the village were found out about it, they would get executed. So their way of telling us was, we're just going to leave. And that's their way of telling us that we were going to get hit. What was it like? Do you remember the first time that uh, you did get hit, that you were uh, essentially attacked and, you know, like, okay, let's really got to take cover here because we could get killed? Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Real well. Uh, it was my second night uh, in our unit. And we, we lived in GP medium tents. And we slept on, uh, we had bunk uh, beds with springs in it that we, we slept on. And I was sound asleep. And I was dreaming about a jet airplane landing on our runway. And all of a sudden, my eyes snapped open. I'm hearing this rocket motor thinking it's a jet engine. And my mind said, but jets can't live here. And I rolled out of bed just about the time that rocket hit behind our tent. Was it too close for comfort? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was right behind the tent. Uh, it was one of these Katusha rockets, 122 millimeter Katusha rocket. <clears throat> and we uh, we ran, got, got in our bunker and uh, spent the rest of the night sitting in the bunker. The movie that you're involved with to uh, basically bring the books to life, what's the realism that you want to try and get in these in this movie? There's a couple of things we want to show that we want to get across. We want to get across the courage, dedication, and loyalty of the crews, of the flight crews. And the other thing we want to get across is the fact that uh, the Vietnamese people were caught between us and the NVA uh, and, and try to show that picture in there that uh, 
they were really on the horns of a dilemma as far as the people went. Uh, a lot of people didn't realize that some of the Vietnamese people, although we they're friends during the daytime, they're trying to kill us at night. But the, uh, but the camaraderie, the helicopter crews is what we're going to try to shoot. And a lot of motion pictures about Vietnam, you've got helicopters in there, but they're in passing. Um, great movie um, done by one of your countrymen, Nell Gibson. We were soldiers once and young. They got helicopters in there, but they're in passing. Uh, they don't really focus on what the crews are doing to each other and how they're taking care of each other. We want to try to, to put that out there that here's what the crews were going through at the time, as opposed to what the grunts are doing. What's the timeline for the movie? There was a battle called Lam San 719. It took place from 8 February to 4, uh, 15 April, 71. Uh, in that 45 days period, we lost 600 helicopters, 1,100 crew members were wounded, 108 pilots were killed, and 11 pilots are still MIA. Uh, it was the biggest battle that Army aviation has ever fought in, and yet very few people here in the United States know about it. It, it is the battle that changed the tactics, the training, and the equipment that Army aviation today flies with. And uh, that's what we're going to try to focus on, bringing, them, bringing that to the big screen. Who's going to play you in these movies? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we haven't done casting yet. Have I'm trying to find a young, good-looking guy <laughs> about, about six foot tall. About, I don't know. If you were to uh, go pick someone out of the, out of the crowd of uh, Hollywood superstars, who would you like to play you? Uh, I have been looking at Milo uh, Gibson, Mel Gibson's son. He's, he has played in uh, Axar Ridge. He played in The Outpost. In my younger days, he looked a little. He looks a little bit like me. In my younger days, uh, so I've been kind of looking at, at. Hopefully, we might be able to get him to to jump on board. If you know him, put a pitch in for him. <laughs> <laughs> it must be pretty exciting to see these things that you've written that are your memories finally coming to life and and getting out to a new market in in so many ways it, it is it's exciting in fact i only regret that i didn't do this about 20 years ago uh at my age now you know i'm hoping that i'll still be around when when the movie gets gets made uh but if if not then so be it at least people will know what we did and how we did it and when we did it your wife was a big part of your army career it must have been hard you met her during your vietnam days what happened there <laughs> this is only being broadcast in australia right <laughs> <laughs> uh, i met my wife in uh, north africa in morocco her dad and my dad were stationed at the same base and i met her uh just before i joined the army and then when I came back to Vietnam the first time, uh, we got hooked back up again because her mother and my mother are Italian and they're both in the same part of New York City. And I swear to God, I think it was an arranged marriage. But, <laughs> uh, and then when I finally came back to Vietnam, I think 30 days later, we were married and we've been married for 50 years now. And she's been great. She's put up with so much and she's always stood by me. She's helped me out. And in, in the 
and I'm sure it's the same in the Australian Army, when you're a commander, your wife is in charge of the family support uh, system. So she plays a big part of your Army role and your Army career. Well, I know my mother was definitely, well, my stepmother was definitely Mrs. Wing Commander. And yes. uh, when my father was in charge of a unit. And they are important. They are, as you say, just as important in some ways as the commander. Yes, uh, exactly. My wife, uh, I commanded a uh, airborne company up in Alaska. And uh, when we first got there, there was a, there were a few wives that whenever the husbands went to the field, right away they were on the phone, oh, I need to have him come home. Uh, we made the rule that if they wanted their husband to come home, they had to call my wife. My <laughs> wife would decide whether the husband was coming home or not. And very few husbands got to come home. And same when I was a battalion commander, my wife was, she was kind of the shepherd to, to the other wives, company commanders' wives and lieutenants' wives. How was support was she when you did start to get this PTSD? Uh, she's, she was super. Uh, she, she knew I had it before I did. She saw some things in me when I first came back from Vietnam that, although we didn't know the term PTSD, that, but she knew something wasn't right there. But it didn't stand out that much because everybody I associated with, we were all in the same boat. We were all just back from Vietnam. And then, uh, and then when we got down here, and it, it, it crested itself. Um, she saw it coming, and she wasn't surprised when I finally had the breakdown. So, um, but she's just she's just been super, you know. She's just she's the rock. The military is renowned for short uh, or marriage problems. I know my parents broke up, and you know I put it down to a lot of the military experiences. How important was it the fact that your wife was there and was your rock? Oh, she yeah, she is the. My sons will even tell you, mom is the rock of the family, and uh, she's always been there. Coming from a, a, a military family, she understood the the name of the game, and uh, and so it wasn't that hard for her. It, it, a young lady that uh, is suddenly jumps into this thing, it, it's tough on them. It's tough especially if your husband's got a position that he's constantly gone. Uh, you know, in our house, dad on the submarines, uh, he'd be gone for, you know, a month of time, back for three weeks and gone again. Mom ruled the roost. And uh, when, when we got married, I, I gave the checkbooks and everything to my wife and said, you know, you're going to have to manage all this. I can't because I'm going to be gone a lot. And I was. I was gone an awful lot. Uh, I think the first... 15 years of our marriage, I was never home on an anniversary date. I was always out in the field someplace. Uh, but yeah, she, they, they pretty much are able to run the house. Where people get in trouble is you go on a long deployment, mama's running the house, running the family, taking care of everything, and dad walks in and says, okay, I'm in charge now. Oh, no, 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 no. That does not work. Mama's <laughs> been in charge and she's going to stay in charge. But uh, yeah, it is tough on a young family. If, uh, if the wife does not understand what she's getting her. As you say, in. military deployments, when you're away long periods of time, that can make or break a marriage. You, you Are, are you yeah. lucky, one of the lucky ones? I was one of the, definitely one of the lucky ones. Uh, yeah, a long deployment. Wives start climbing the walls and, you know, the kids are hanging at them and they'll go find extra activity or a, a shoulder to lean on. 
or they just finally get fed up and say, I've had enough of this stuff. Get out or I'm gone. And, you know, husbands will say, nope, I'm, I'm staying in. So it's, it's tough on a marriage. You gotta have, you've got to have a strong marriage in order to survive a military family. Back in the day in Vietnam, most of the guys were single, but there were married guys that were over there. How did they cope? A lot of the married guys over there, they did all right uh, because we used to get R&R. You, got a, you could take a seven-day R&R, um, and most of the married guys, they went to Hawaii for that, met their wives in Hawaii. And then you could get a seven-day leave. R&R didn't count against you for leave. The seven-day leave did. So a lot of guys, they, they take their seven-day R&R, go to Hawaii, leave their wife there, come back right away, put in for their seven-day leave, and run right back to Hawaii. So um, that worked out pretty good for a lot of them. Where it got tough on a lot of the families, though, um, especially in the, the 66, 67, 68 time frame, the guy would go over, he'd be there a year, he'd come back to the States for a year, and then turn around and go right back again. And a lot of guys did that three and four times. It's like today, these guys go into Afghanistan four or five times, or Iraq uh, three or four times. It's, it's really tough on a family. Did it turn you into a man going to Vietnam? Uh, no, I've always, been, I've always been a male gender. Is that what you're asking? No, did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up. Yes, I did. Uh, you can't help but grow up in something like that. Uh, now, was I still a prankster? Yeah. <laughs> and you, could, you could tell I like to joke around. Uh, and that never changed. I kept my sense of humor, thank God. But, uh, yeah, did I, did I become more mature? Certainly. What sort of fun did you get up to while you were over in Vietnam? None. I mean, you flew, uh, you flew every day. Uh, the, the rule was, when I first got there, if you got 140 hours flight time in 30 days, you got two days off. Then that got changed to 150 hours. Then it got changed to 160 hours. And then it was, you could beg for a day off, but you're probably not going to get it. We were so <laughs> short of flight. Uh, we were. We had we had uh, 21 aircraft. We had 40 pilots, which means we couldn't fly all of our aircraft with a, a two-man flight crew. And uh, thank God, most of the time you only had 17 that were flyable because three or four would be in maintenance. Yeah, you didn't get any fun days off. There, there was no fun days. What did we, you do in your downtime? Oh, in downtime? Uh, drank beer. That's all we could get was beer. So uh, we drank beer, play cards. Uh, write letters home, read books, paperback books. Uh, and that was about it. Uh, we did get a movie projector after the first year. So about every three days, we got a chance to watch a movie. Uh, Night of the Living Dead was the worst movie we got. That movie still scares the daylights out of me to this day. That was a frightening <laughs> movie. You haven't seen it. Uh, but that was about it for entertainment. We just... Uh, oh, we, we did get... Uh, we did our, our CO. He surprised the daylights out of us. This is the fourth CO. He sent a chopper down to Saigon. And uh, we've been, we've been flying our butts off. We were exhausted. And he had a helicopter go down to Saigon. And then the word went out that there was going to be a company formation that evening at five o'clock. And he'd never call company formations. And everybody's going, what in the world is this for? So at five o'clock, all the all the crews are went out to where we assembled. 
the first sergeant gets out there and he's he's he put out some frivolous information and we're all scratching our heads going what you know they can put this on the bulletin board and read it and then he, he called us all to attention gave us a right face marched the whole company towards the mess hall we had a it was the only metal building we had this big metal building got there and there's two mps standing in front of the door and they opened the doors and we marched in and here's this rock band with filipino girls in mini skirts and some of the donut dollies in mini skirts some of the nurses in mini skirts and on this side it was a bar set up with and the cooks they've been cooking steaks all afternoon and we had one hell of a party that night uh he even got the next day we all had the day off at what's called a stand down and so we all got to sleep in spend the day laying around in bed and it was really nice that was that was I think that happened twice while I was there, that uh, the CEO worked out something like that. You must have been anxious to get flying when you got over there. How did you feel when you finally got to the stage where I've got to have a break from it? When I got there, as every new pilot did, one of the first questions I asked is, how many hours flying are we getting? And I was told that you're going to get so many hours that you're going to go to bed at night and your butt cheeks are going to hurt and you're going to wake up the next morning and they're still going to hurt and you're going to have another 12 to 15 hour day flying. And I was there for a week before I got in the cockpit. It was another 20 days before I got out of the cockpit and my butt cheeks were hurting. <laughs> and I was, I was glad to get a day down and, and just be able to lay in bed. You were flying Hueys at the time. Yes. You've got a really high regard for that aircraft. Describe what you, when you started really getting into the nitty gritty of flying these aircraft, your appreciation for them. Oh, it was, the, the UH-1 was a fantastic aircraft. Uh, and when you come out of flight school, you're scratching the surface on how to operate that thing. Uh, then when you get with some of the combat pilots, the guys that have been there, the guys who are taking you under their wing and training you, then you start to realize what this aircraft can really do. Low-level auto rotations—they uh, were fan, they were fun. We'd go out and practice those every night. I think the the one thing that drove it home for me how much pain that aircraft could take. Uh, <laughs> I was out with a guy. He was a test pilot from Bell Helicopter, and we did an auto rotation. We were at a thousand feet. He closed the throttle, he zeroed out the airspeed, and did a 360 pedal turn, dropped the nose straight to the ground, built up the rotor speed, and landed just as nicely as could be. And he said, that's easy. She'll take that. And if she'll take that, she'll take anything. Uh, I really thought when he did the 360 pedal turn, I thought we were going to rip the tail boom right off and just did as smooth as could be. Um, I've seen the Hueys come in and, and hit the ground so hard that it would spread the skids out and you still flew them out. I flew one out. We went in on combat assault and an aircraft fell through and he landed on some stumps and the crew all jumped out and they got another aircraft. Well, we had to clear that LZ. Uh, it was a two ship LZ to start with. Now we had a one ship and we still had 17 loads to get in there. So I jumped out of my aircraft, ran over, looked at this aircraft real quick jumped in, started it up, and picked it up. And when I picked it up, I lost 600 pounds of fuel. And because I didn't see that it was sitting on stumps that had driven through the fuel bladders. 
<laughs> and when I picked it up, I went from 600 pounds to 200 pounds, and I flew that thing out. Uh, they were just, the Huey was such a forgiving aircraft that it's, I'm still in love with the Huey today. Weights and balances obviously is a, a big part of uh, helicopter flying. With with constant changes and, and no flight plan, they must have been an incredible aircraft, and you guys must have really uh, developed as pilots to be able to accept so many changes so suddenly. We were. Uh, one of the things that I used to do, I found that the first time into any LZ, I would take in 35-gallon water cans. That gave me a, a, a an efficient load, but it left me with enough power that I could do almost anything with wind and angles and stuff like that and still be, be safe with the aircraft. Uh, then after that, I would tell him, okay, we'll take 35 or we'll take so much load, so much more on. And the crew chief, he was the guy for really responsible for positioning everything as close to the transmission well, the center of the aircraft as we could. And, and I had great faith in my crew chief that he, he did that right and always kept us in balance. Uh, the worst LZ I ever went into, I tried to go in 30 water cans and three attempts later, I finally got in with just 10 water cans. But uh, it was a matter of, it was a bad LZ. It was just, it was a 300 foot hover hole down through the trees and the wind was blowing in the wrong way. Talk us through that, what happened? Well, we got out there and uh, we were resupplying a rifle company. It was getting in late in the afternoon. They were getting their, their nightly water cans, ammunition, food. And I got out there and I had the 30 water cans in and we're about 300 feet above the ground in the tree, over the trees. And the way the wind was blowing, the best way to get in there, the wind was going to blow right up my tail. And so you like to, to hover into the wind. And I, every time I tried to hover into the wind, the, the trees, the way the trees were positioned, we couldn't get down. So I had to go in with the tail boom facing into the wind to get down and every time i tried that she i was running out of power and so we flew out we dropped some off come back finally it got in there and there was a a, a tree it was a bomb crater is what what we were going down and there was a tree across the bomb crater i was able to get in there and set my skids on the tree we kicked stuff out uh they got a couple of guys on that had to get out of there and we worked our way back up and and to do that you're looking out front of the aircraft and you got the one guy that's flying, and he's concentrating just on that rotor tip in front. The other guy that's not flying, he's looking off to the sides. The eyes in the back are the crew chief and the gunner. They're watching your tail. And you got in there, and it's, okay, clear to come down. And you drop down, you drop down, stop. Turn tail right. You turn your tail boom to the right a little bit. Come down. Stop. Slide left. Slide the aircraft over a little bit. And you're working your way down through these trees. And a couple of times you get down there, you can barely look up in through the greenhouse window and see the sky. It's all tree limbs above you. And then you start back up through that same stuff. Crew chief and door gunner talking you up and talking you out of there. All of your lives literally are in each other's hands. Exactly. Exactly. You're, you're depending on each other 100% to do the job and get in and out of there. What about fire when you were taking fire on these, these aircraft? How resilient were they? 
they were pretty resilient because the Huey's got a lot of hollow space in it. Uh, the tail boom, the tail boom's hollow. Uh, there, there's very little in the tail boom that's that's critical. Um, so you take a lot of hits in the tail boom, you didn't worry about it too much. Uh, <laughs> big tail boom, small bullet. So it was it was pretty pretty safe. Uh, the floor, uh, you had push pull tubes down here, your controls down there, but again, you didn't have a lot there. Now where it got critical was right in the middle where the transmission, engine, and fuel bladders were. You start taking hits in there, uh, then you start to worry. Oh, and the other place you worried about taking hits was right up there where the two pilots were sitting in the cockpit. <laughs> that kind of bothered you a little bit when, when you know you hear something hit your armor plate because our seats were armor plated for uh, small arms. And, and that got your attention a little bit when you hear something smacking on the side of those things. Did you personally uh, get hit at all? Uh, I lost the heel of one boot. That was it. Wow, you so, must have been pretty lucky. Somebody was watching out for me. I have a guy that I really admire from the Vietnam War, a guy called Neil Davis, who was a combat cameraman over in Vietnam. And he actually filmed the last choppers leaving from the embassy, that uh, iconic Vietnam footage. He actually stayed behind and shot it. Did you know that that iconic shot was not on the embassy? Wow. It was on a hotel just down the street from the embassy. I just found that out here a couple of weeks ago, but it was not that that picture is not from the roof of the embassy. Wow, what happened? I I, I don't know. I just I just I I was I saw something on it written up, uh, but it's an iconic shot. Because you're dealing with the PSD, does it does that bring back memories when you see that war footage? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It, it, I've got uh, the eight CDs for the Vietnam War Air War, and. Uh, I don't watch them very frequently, but yes, they they definitely bring back memories on some of the stuff. You know, some of the stuff you look at it and you go, how the hell did we ever do that? Or why in the hell did I ever do that? <laughs> I want to talk to you about the transition to go through. You stayed in the Army after Vietnam. Now, what was the decision to stay in the service? I enjoyed it. Um, I was having fun doing the job I was doing. I like the people, the camaraderie, and that's the big thing I miss now is the camaraderie of, of, of the guys I served with. Uh, I felt like what I was doing had a purpose, and so I, I just enjoyed it. That's the reason I wanted to stay in. Uh, in fact, I had been discharged for a week from the Army and didn't know it because of a foul-up in records uh, that were transferred from Vietnam to the States. And uh, we just had our first son... And a guy, I was talking to a guy in Washington, D.C., and he said, he's, I, was, I was seeing about going back to college. <clears throat> and he said, well, uh, first, first you got to be regular Army or indefinite. And I said, well, I'm in death. He goes, no, you're not. In fact, looking at your records, you were discharged last week. I said, no, I wasn't. I'm commanding a company here at Fort Lewis. I can't be discharged. And he said, well, I'll get back with you tomorrow. And he got back to the next day. He said, well, you've got an application for regular Army appointment, so you're still on active duty for now. <laughs> Call me and we'll let you know if you still have a job. I'm, oh, God. So, but, yeah, I, I got my regular Army appointment. So, Because when you went to Vietnam, the protests were in full swing. 
What did you think about that, the, the attitude towards the Vietnam War in the States? I had the attitude that, uh, you know, it's, it's, you got your rights to, to speak your mind and, and say what you want, and I don't agree with it. But, uh, but that was about it. Now, they didn't get real bad until uh, May of, of 70 when we went into Cambodia, and then, then the demonstrations got really bad here in the States. But uh, before that, there was nothing to it. But as an example, I came home in January of 70, flew into Seattle, got on a plane in Seattle, flew uh, out, to the, out to the East Coast, all in uniform. Nobody said a word to me. Nobody spit at me, none of that stuff. And when I came back the last time, uh, I landed in San Francisco and went downtown in uniform. This is in 71, went to uh, top of the mark, never had to buy a drink. People were just as nice as could be. So it was, it was just isolated pockets of uh, dissent. You know, it was around, you know, on campus at Berkeley or uh, University of Washington campus. Uh, even the school that I finally went back to college at, uh, the rabble rousers for the Vietnam War were all in the math department. So, <laughs> you know. Was it hard to deal with, though, the fact that there was that sort of protest? No. I, you know, it's your opinion, go ahead, voice it, but don't get in my face with it. And, and nobody ever did. Looking back now, there's a whole different attitude towards the guys that, fought in Vietnam. Is that something that you take on board these days? That, and, and how does that help you with the fact that now these days people are really respectful and thankful for what you guys did? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly, it certainly has helped me to know that, that we were appreciated after all. And people come up to us all the time, like if I wear, a, you know, if I wear this shirt or if I wear my hat with the Screaming Eagles on it, People all the time, you know, the other day, a, a kid at the burger came. And I pulled up and ordered my burger, and I looked up, and the kid's standing there giving me a salute. Uh, so people, you know, they appreciate what we did in Vietnam, and, and they're just recognizing and have recognized here for the last 10 years that, that maybe we weren't treated right, and they're trying to make up for it. And I'm glad to see that they're treating the kids today uh, much better than they ever treated us. As you say, with... Um a new uh, generation are reading your books and getting a new appreciation for what you did. What was the comparison, though, when you came back from Desert Storm and you were wearing uniform after that? What was the difference that you felt and saw? Oh, my God. We came back from Desert Storm and it was one parade after another. We landed at JFK and uh, they had to refuel the plane. They asked us to get off the plane. We got off the plane. The Paul was lined with people applauding us. And there's a pizza store in Brooklyn. They sent out enough pizzas. They must have sent out 50 or 60 pizzas that were sitting there stacked up waiting for us. And the airport had opened up the bar and they were giving us, they asked me if, if guys could drink. I said, they can have beer. That's it. And just two beers per man. They opened up the beers, gave them beer. They didn't even charge us for it. Now, the, the reception we got come back from Desert Storm was fantastic. Does it make up for what went on in Vietnam now, the fact that uh, uh, ex-servicemen are really treated with the respect that they deserve? Yeah, it, it, it is made up for. I'm glad to see that we're finally getting out 
of Afghanistan and Iraq. But what scares me is what's down the road. But my son graduated, my oldest son graduated from college. Both boys graduated. They had been prior service and then they, they went back to college, got their commissions. And when Jay graduated, I, they asked me to give the graduation speech. And I told them, this was just after the Soviet Union had fell apart. And I told them, I said, guys, ladies, when I accepted my commission, I knew who my enemy was. I knew who I would probably have to fight someday or suspected I would have to fight someday. I could study my enemy. Today, we don't know who your enemy is going to be. It is a much more dangerous world today for you than it ever was for me. At least I knew what I had to go up against. You don't. And it's, it's still that way today. Do you look at these things like uh, there's a flashpoint now in the Middle East? Does that worry you with your sons in the military that there could be another major conflict that they may have to be involved in? Uh, not the Middle East. What bothers me is what's going on with China. The Middle East is pithy. Uh, I, I have seen the Arab armies in action. And I have seen the Jewish army. Trust me, Israel can <laughs> handle anything. Israel can handle anything that the Arabs want to throw at them. That, that doesn't bother me one bit. Uh, in Desert Storm, we had two Egyptian divisions uh, in the coalition. That was, that was, I don't know if you guys watched the TV show Hogan's Heroes over there. Oh, absolutely. Watching the Egyptians was funnier than watching Hogan's Heroes. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were eating up. But, uh, but what's going on in the Far East there, uh, that's, that scares me a bit. I want to get back to that, but I'm just asking on the television show, you look at a show like MASH that actually went longer than the Korean conflict itself. What do you think when you look at those sorts of shows that in some ways glamorize what happened? MASH was not too far off the target of what was going on in Vietnam, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, now, we did not have a clinger uh, running around in a dress. <laughs> But, but we did have a radar. Uh, we did have a, uh, who was the XO, the major they had there? Not Houlihan. Major we Burns. We had a Major Burns. Uh, so MASH was not far off. And their living conditions were the same living conditions that we had. We were intense just like they had. So, uh, yeah, MASH was, MASH was funny. Uh, but it, 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 it portrayed it pretty well, I think, for what we were going through at the time. And the humor that they used to get through it, and you say that you were a bit of a prankster, a bit of a joker, is, is that's how you guys got through it? Warped humor, yes. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's a perfect example of what we thought was funny. Uh, we had just come back in from flying a night mission. We were sitting in the mess hall. I was still a Peter pilot. We're sitting in the mess hall, and uh, one of our pilots uh, went walking by us. Had his shirt off, just had on flip and flops and uh, his pants. He was about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, weighed about 200 pounds. Could play it on any rugby team. Bald as, as bald-headed as could be. And uh, he stopped by and said, you know, hey, ladies, how you doing today? And we all laughed and said, good. Why aren't you flying today? He said, oh, I got this, got this terrible head cold. And I'm just all stopped up. So the doc grounded me for the day and gave me some stuff to clean it up. Oh, Okay. He said, well, I'll see you guys later. I'm going to go to the library. Well, the library was our 
three-hole latrine. And uh, <laughs> he walks He walks off. And he's got a newspaper in one hand and a cigar in the other. Cigar's not lit. He walks over to the latrine, goes inside, door closes. Less than a minute later, we hear this explosion. The door flies open. He comes flying out. And this big fireball is chasing him. He'd gone into the latrine, dropped his pants, sat down, and the village idiot, instead of putting diesel fuel in the in the cans, put jet fuel in the cans. <laughs> so he takes his, his snapshot, he lights a cigar. What's he do with the match? Dropped it between his legs and set it off. Just blew him right out. He had third-degree brains on his butt, and we all thought that was funny. And we ran over and we pleased him up, but we laughed. We laughed all afternoon about that. I mean, sick sense of humor. I think you have to do it. Just uh, there was so much death and destruction around you. It's one way. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah, it was a coping mechanism. You talk about China. Now, what's your worry over there? What do you What do you see happening? Because, as you say, that's a flashpoint in the world. They're now starting to build bases and... Uh, on you know building islands where they they weren't before and they're building obviously setting up for war what do you think could happen over there uh i'm afraid that there is going to be an incident uh with a naval engagement or they're going to go after taiwan and, and i hate to say it but uh, we are not in the strongest position right now with our current administration and and coming back trying to recover from all the years we spent over in the Middle East. So uh, that's that's my fear, is that they're going to try to flex muscles and there'll be some sort of incident occurs with naval forces and then uh, the, the Taiwan issue. Do you think that we could be involved in uh, another major world war? I wouldn't be surprised. Have you spoken to your sons about it? Because obviously they're in the, uh, the, the firing line uh, uh, excuse the pun, but they are really going to be actively involved if it happens being in the service now. Yeah, yeah. What's my, their thoughts on it? Well, my one son, uh, he's in a position where he studies Europe mostly. He's serving at NATO headquarters. He's more worried about Russia uh, and some of the activities up in the Arctic with the Russians. And, uh, but that's, that's because that's where his focus is at. And uh, he said, boy, if the Russians and the Chinese ever get together and do something at the same time, he says, we will definitely be in trouble. Do you think that could happen? Yeah, I think it could. Do you see an allegiance between the Russians and the Chinese, or they'll just basically, they're both pushing for independent power? Both pushing for independent power at this point. Uh, they've had some... You know, they've, they've had some close ties over the years, and then they've also had some very strained relationships uh, over the years. I don't think their relationships are that strong right now. Uh, but I think if, if uh, China started something and we got entangled in China, I think the, the input is there for Russia to say, all right, the United States is too weak to, to do two fronts. We can go ahead and do this now. And, and we're liable to find ourselves in that kind of a boat or vice versa. Uh, the Russians may go ahead and do something in the Arctic and the result would be China would say, now the United States is too weak to do anything with us. What is uh, recruitment like now in the military in the U.S.? It's good. It's good. We've, we've, 
recruiters have had no problem meeting their goals and objectives. Uh, we've got a lot more women now in the military. And uh, I, for one, don't have a problem with that. Uh, I had, in fact, I had a young lady uh, who was my, in my infantry battalion in Desert Storm. Uh, she was an ambulance driver. Great little soldier. Did very well. Retention has been good, too, uh, surprisingly, even though the guys are doing multiple deployments. We do have a problem with pilots, though. Uh, the airlines need pilots, and they're making very enticing offers to Air Force and Navy pilots to get them to get out and come fly for the airlines. Though COVID may have something to say about that with uh, the, the change of uh, yeah. international travel. Yeah, the COVID cut back on airline flights. So that may have eased off the, the pain a little bit on uh, them recruiting pilots from the military. But uh, it's starting to pick back up again. I mean, we, we don't wear masks anymore here. With your next set of books that you're going to write on Desert Storm, when are they starting to come out? Uh, the first book just went back to the editor for the final look yesterday. The second book will be going to the editor this week for the first look. And the third book, I'm writing it now. Uh, we're hoping to have them out probably in August, September, August, October time frame. Undaunted Valor, the three volumes that you have, if someone wants to find out about it, how can they get a copy? Amazon uh, is where they're at. I don't know if you have Amazon down there. Sure do. Well, you can get it off of Amazon in either an ebook or paperback. Uh, Kindle is going to start printing them down there in Australia uh, here very shortly because they sent me something saying, uh, right now where you've got a price, that's what's going to cost to get it printed. So if you want to make any kind of a profit, you're going to have to increase your price, which didn't make me happy. But the uh, Kindle, Amazon... If somebody wants a written me sign it uh, edition, contact me at uh, info at mattjacksonbooks.com and we'll work something out where I'll sign it and mail it to them. Uh, I'll charge them the U.S. price for the book and then whatever shipping is to, to Australia. Personally, I'd rather bring it to Australia, but uh, it's going to have to be faster than a seven-hour flight. Because you never got here during the when during the Vietnam conflict, you never actually got to uh, do some time here. But you got a lot of time in other places. I, I did. Uh, I had been a merchant sailor uh, before I joined the army, and so I got you know I got to Singapore and Kuala Lumpur and through that area. Um, I was raised in Japan, so the only place left really was Australia, but. I had an attitude that I'm in Vietnam. I don't want to leave because I may hate coming back. And so uh, I, I, I just, I never did. I never took an R&R, &R, never took a leave, uh, except for a mid-tour leave when I came back and, and uh, met my wife and, or girlfriend at that time, got hooked up with her and then, then went back to Vietnam. But uh, I just never left to, to go to those places. Was it tough to go back after you met your wife and who was your girlfriend then? Was it tough to go back? No, no, because we were just we just dated for a week, uh, so you know it wasn't it wasn't tough to go back. But but she did write to me almost every day after I went back. We wrote back and forth almost every day to each other. Uh, we didn't have we didn't have cell phones or satellite phones or internet that kind of stuff. So you, it was all snail mail back in them days. Uh, the other reason. 
truthfully, that I did not want to go to Australia because Sydney is where every other GI was at. And I didn't want to go someplace where there was a lot more GIs at. GIs sometimes, when they get in mass like that and they're on R&R, they get stupid. And I just, <laughs> I just didn't want to get involved with all that. So I wish I had. I wish I wish at some point in time I would have gotten stationed. My, my youngest son almost got stationed uh, a couple of years ago to Canberra. And uh, he really wanted to do that. But he's a single dad and uh, he, he couldn't take his daughter over. So. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you for a chat to, to talk about what you've done in the, the Vietnam conflict and also to talk about Undaunted Valor, the three volumes, and also the movie. We're really looking forward to seeing the movie. So will it be called Undaunted Valor when it comes out? It'll either be called Undaunted Valor or it'll be called Lam Song 719. One of the two, because the bulk of it is going to be about the Lam Song operation. Uh, so it'll be one of those two. And if anybody wants to donate some coin to get in the movie made, uh, we'll accept uh, accept donations. So uh, donations can be made to www.fortcampbell.com and just indicate uh, underneath your donation that it's for Undaunted Valor. How tough and, is uh, it to raise money to get the movie made? I've been getting a lot of... Uh, donations from guys that that served over there. Uh, We tried to get one big corporate uh, donor and they said that no, that was Bell Helicopter. We thought thought they'd step up to the plate, but they didn't. So we're still working on trying to raise some money for it. We've we've got to raise uh, $150,000 before we can uh, get much done. But once we hit that point, uh, then things will be able to take off quite a bit. Where are you now? Uh, we're at about 30,000. So, uh, some of that's already been spent getting things in line, but, uh, we'll keep plugging away at it to get it going. I, I think we're going to, I think we're going to be okay, uh, with people, you know, the $5, $10 donations. And, uh, then my producer, uh, she's got some, some good contacts and we'll start picking it up. I just got her on board here last week. So we've even talked about trying to film it in Australia. Uh, she wants to film it outside the United States because we can film it cheaper. And uh, I said, well, you know, Mel Gibson did We Were Soldiers Once and Young in Australia. Maybe we can go down there and do it. She said, well, it's more than a seven-hour flight. I said, I can sleep for seven hours. <laughs> well, we do have a, uh, a pretty good film studio on the Gold Coast, Movie <laughs> World do. on the Gold Coast. So uh, you'd be welcome with open arms. I will tell you my, my my absolute favorite motion picture, and I watch it uh, at least once every two months. Nicole Kidman in Australia with Hugh Jackman. I love that movie. It's such a such a good thing that you you're bringing this to life, and hopefully we can spread the word and get some more money to help you go. But have you thought of going to Hollywood to just try and get uh, one of the big studios to? finance and produce it that is on the uh, tasking list what we got to do first of all is finish the screenplay get it just exactly where we want it and then we then we can take it to uh, to hollywood so that's that's what we're doing right now well if you do decide to come and produce it in australia we would welcome you with open arms we will stay in contact
<laughs> Definitely. Colonel Matt Jackson, thank you for joining us over the bonnet. Thank you, sir. You have a good day. <laughs>